From the Vaults, audio from Edmonton's past. This recording consists of an interview of June Shepard conducted by John McIsaac on December 10th, 1982. This material was recorded on a 5-inch open reel tape and was digitized by an archivist on February 11th, 2021. Our interview today is with June Shepard. June, perhaps I can begin by asking you when and where you were born. Mm-hmm. I was born in Edmonton in 1920. And was your, your family, your mother and father lived here at that time? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. My grandmother, grandfather, mother and father lived here, having all of them having come from Scotland in 1912. And did they, was your father a trade person or a professional? Or? He worked for a, um, a moving company. A van and storage company. I wish to God he bought shares in it because little did we know that down the road that was going to be a big business in it. Indeed. And, and your mother was a homemaker? Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and then besides yourself, how many children did they raise? One other sister. Two girls in the family. I see. And how about your schooling? You, you went to Mackay Avenue School? No, or? no. We lived in the Norwood District. I went to Norwood School to grade 8 to Spruce Avenue School in grade 9, to Victoria High School for um, 10, 11, and 12, and to McDougal Commercial for my one year of business training. That was pretty standard for the day. Very much so, yes. It was a special course at McDougal that time. If you had done well in high school and either didn't want to go to university or in my case had to get out and earn a job pretty fast, so uh, I couldn't afford the luxury of few years at university, because I was a very good student, um, then I took the, the business course and as I say, if you did well in high school, you were entitled to take a very good um, business course that just lasted one year. And just doing a little bit of quick arithmetic, I guess you graduated just in time to be in the middle of the depression. No, the depression was before that, yeah, because um, having been born in 1920, yeah, I was in my, my father first lost his job when I was uh, early teens, mm-hmm. early thirties. I see. And since that time, have you, you have you continued any sort of formal education? Have you, you know, picked up any university courses? That no. sort of thing. No, I feel I have the equivalent of a, a full <laughs> university education on my own, yeah. but uh, oh, I've taken the odd course here and there, a philosophy course and so on, history of religious studies and so on and so forth, but uh, nothing formal. And uh, where did you first go to work? My first job was at the uh, Workers' Compensation Board. At that time we called it the Workmen's Compensation Board. Mm -hmm. I was a um, a steno and then moved into the medical um, wing of it, worked for doctors gave me a fairly good background that's helped me through the years in medical terminology and so on and so forth. That was my first job for the Alberta government. Um, but we know you as a writer, or at least a media person. Oh, I'd always like to write. In fact, I tell people when they ask me when I started to write, that my, um, my first write, piece of writing that I remember getting a notice for was a contest on why I like Orange Crush, mm-hmm. in which I won the prize. And then uh, I won a prize writing for the Capitol Theatre, whose manager was a well-known character in Edmonton that you might have already have, have done some research into, Walter Wilson, who was known as the um, 
the, he called himself the world's worst announcer. He was very <laughs> English, and he did a program on CJCA. And um, he had this contest. You had to write why you liked a certain movie. And I won that. But I've always loved to write. I, I would exchange uh, the writing of composition for some friend lending me her sweater to wear or something like this when I was very young. Mm -hmm. And um, when I was at the comp board, I, uh, I thought I'd learned almost everything there was to learn there. And I was born with a tremendous amount of curiosity. Um, and so I decided to take the big chance and uh, apply for a job at CJCA Radio as a writer. And that was your, uh, your, your first job at, at the writer. You were 22 then, I yes. think. Right. And uh, while you were at CJC, I understand you did a show with uh, Gil Evans. No, no. No? Or that, was that at CKUA? That's CKUA, yeah. I, I did quite a bit of on-air work at CJCA, mind you. Um, quite a lot of it. But, um, uh, no, the, the, uh, most of that was commercial work. Oh, no. no I, as a matter of fact, one of the comments I might make about CJC right here is that one part of my job was to um, to put together newscasts too. I was partly a scriptwriter for both commercial and non-commercial shows. Radio was very different then because that was before the advent of the disc jockey and the 159 hit tunes of the last hour. <laughs> um, but uh, I um, so I was on a news beat as well as writing as well as as on uh, air work. And I also wrote a commentary on the news once a week, but I wasn't allowed to air it. The manager of the, of the uh, department, the continuity uh, department, had to air it because they said they could, the audience would not take seriously a woman talking about the news. So I put it together and wrote it for him. Really? <laughs> Boy, did, did, did you feel the injustice of that at the time? I didn't at the time. No. no none of the women in that department raised an eyebrow. Mm -hmm. It seemed like the natural, normal thing at the time. You didn't question it. Indeed, it was for the time. Yes. Mm -hmm. And now your your work with CKUA was that at the same time as CJCA, no, no, or was no. after? No, because I um, I married when I was at CJCA. Mm -hmm. I married a, a fellow who was on the staff there. Uh, radio stations have, have always been great romantic, like hospitals, you know, great, <laughs> great romantic trice go on there. Anyway, I um, I married and then I stayed home. Um, with my, with my two children were quite close together. And um, I began to um, freelance, oh, just to keep my hand in, for CBC, CBC Radio. That's when the children were a little bit older, maybe, well, out of the real baby stage. Um, and I, the CBC was a marvelous market for me. And for women in my position who didn't want a full-time job, I freelanced for uh, local CBC radio, national CBC radio, and the international market of the CBC was wonderful. I, I think it's maybe a little bit less now, but it was great in those days. Mm -hmm. I I didn't I didn't know about your local and national. I only knew about the international. Oh, aspect. I did both. No, mm -hmm. I mean all three. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm mostly interested in the international service. Sort of had a certain amount of intrigue. And, and what, what sort of topics did you cover? Well, really, the whole spectrum. The idea was that you came up with something, or you read something. There might have been something in the in the Edmonton Journal, for heaven's sake, that you thought might um, interest an international audience, and um, you queried Montreal, 
It was a man in Montreal who was uh, responsible for deciding what to buy and what not to buy. So you would send a telegram or write a letter to Montreal and list certain ideas. For instance, so I still remember the number I did on this wonderful new tar sands up in Athabasca that was going to be developed momentarily. <laughs> that must have provided a lot of material for a lot of broadcasters for a lot of years. And um, uh, not, I was never interested in doing something that was sort of, um, oh, how shall I put it, um, doing something on the Indians for the sake of intriguing people in far places about these um, curious, strange people that we had, you know, that, that kind mm -hmm. of approach, no. But I did do stories on, on um, Indian life and uh, um, anything that was distinctively Albertan, certainly and even more so distinctively Edmonton, but usually distinctively Albertan. Uh, and beyond that, um, Canadian flavor. You have to remember this was going to Europe, Australia, New Zealand. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so get, getting back to CKUA, the, mm -hmm. the show there was called Conversation Yes. Case. And what was that about? Well, um, it was, once again, it was just uh, anything that appealed to me, anything that I felt was uh, worth a, a commentary. I, I appealed to the man who was the managing, I have to say the managing editor, the um, production manager at CKUA. Um, I would corner him, much to my husband's chagrin, <laughs> at cocktail parties and what have you, and um, say, you know, the station needs a, a woman commentator. Jean Richards, the Alberta artist, you know, mm -hmm. Jean Richards, she Not had done, well, she had done a program, and she, um, she finished, in fact, her, um, her program was called Conversation Piece, we continued her, her title, and um, this fellow, Pat McDougall, would have none of it, absolutely have none of it, he just did not believe that women had a place on the air, their place was in the kitchen, and that was that. Then Tony Cashman became production manager, Tony had a much more open mind to this, and I've known Tony for many years, too. Had you known him at CJ Yes. Yes, he worked in the newsroom with the, well, my husband was news director. Oh, I bet I didn't. Oh, yeah. That's oh, so news director. Just together. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, Tony gave you the, uh, the go-ahead to do... He told me this. It was hardly a big, bold stroke for freedom, but I appreciated it nevertheless. He said um, to come in, and uh, they were doing one of these um, bulletin board type programs, you know, where they announce every... every Little oh, sure, like the bingo and whatever, yeah. And they would insert this five-minute commentary by me in the middle of the program, just to see how it went. Well, it went very well. And so I ended up with, first of all, a half-hour program uh, once a week, in which I did straight commentary, my own, my own opinions on things, interviewed people, uh, talked about books, might co cover a seminar or whatever I had time to do because you have to remember by this time I had a third child and um, uh, the first two were off in early grades but she was six years younger so uh, it, it also depended on how much time I had. I would cover seminars or conferences and things like that and report them on the air. And then they increased uh, the one half hour a week to two half hours a week. So I did two half hours a week for the uh, last well, I guess maybe the last five, six years until I went to the paper. Indeed. And, uh, well, now you went to the paper in 59, I believe. 59? 69. 69? 69. Ah, 
So let's talk about some things that have happened before that. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, your CBC TV experience. Ah, yes. Uh, around town. No, ladies first. Ladies, ladies oh, first. Oh, I did around town too, by God. Yeah, in '54. Yeah, I think. But before that, I did. I wouldn't. Um, I wouldn't blame you if uh, ladies first happened to escape your notice because I um, I started doing the research for them in September of '61. I think it was. Um, left CKUA in order to do this. I went over to the new CBC station, CBXT, mm-hmm. when they opened up and asked if I could make a contribution as a freelancer to this women's program, just or a book review or a theater review. I had done both of those in my life. And um, the, um, the new manager of the station, or production manager of the station, phoned me a couple of days and asked if I would consider the hostess job, because I had never thought of this at all. But well, I talked it over with my then husband. You realize, of course, yeah. you're that I'm not married now. By saying that it's a great relationship for an ex-husband, <laughs> <laughs> better than average. <laughs> but um, well, we were married then. But anyway, I um, I discussed it with him and um, decided that I would give this a try. Well, not to go into details about it, but I found first of all program was a magazine type program that had everything on it from making hats to whatever. All of them good, solid things of interest to somebody, but not all of them terribly interesting to me. So I found that I, there were a lot of things I couldn't get my teeth into. I also found that, um, you know, when people want you very much for a job, they will play down the amount of involvement or the amount of stress and the number of hours so on involved. And I, uh, I found that um, well, really, I was, I was not only on the air three times a week, but I was doing all the research, getting all the program ideas. Uh, in fact, at one point, I even started doing some of the stenography, because the young woman who was going to handle that was doing a lot of other shows, too. In addition to which, uh, CBX got that license uh, by virtue of, well, one thing, um, coming in on a low-budget uh, low appeal which meant that we didn't have money to spend. You also have to remember it was live. Oh, boy. We went on, on camera yeah. live. And um, I was was searching madly for people to fill a half hour three times a week whom we couldn't pay. And not too many people are willing to go way out there and, and you know, how you rush around to get to television and sit and wait. And um, the show was good. Um, but I began to find that the combination of still three young children at home, and this being haunted by trying to keep way ahead on research material, uh, got to my health. And uh, my doctor told me, you get out or else go find another doctor. I was getting, I was really under too much stress. It taught me a lesson, taught me a very valuable lesson. But I was, I had to quit almost overnight. And I, I was so embarrassed, you know, if you're raised in this sort of, Protestant work ethic kind of thing, um, that I was letting people down and so on and so forth. I thought the CBC would never touch me with a 10-foot pole again. But not too long afterwards they asked me to come back after I, I was on a period of about three or four months rest and looking after myself. I came back to do around town. I see. But that was just a brief, I think it was a 15-minute noon hour thing where you really talk about just what the title implies, what's going on around Edmonton. Mm-hmm. And and how long did you stay with Around Town? And how long did you do that, that show? 
I think that was about, well, would it have been a year or two years? I can't really remember. I can't remember how long that went on. It would have been to about maybe 66 or, or there. I would about. think about then, yes. Mm -hmm. yes. And did, did you have any regular uh, work between well, 66 and 69? Well, I went back to CKUA. Ah, I didn't know that. Yes, when I quit um, CBC, as I say, I had this period of, of rest and um, went back to do around town. and then. But I didn't go back to CKUA until after I joined the journal. Now, just a minute, I'm getting, I'm getting this mixed up. I'm getting this mixed up. I went to the journal in 69. And I went to back to CKUA again in 70, because I'm trying to think of when Ross Monroe came to the journal. The reason I say that is that it was when I was interviewing Ross Monroe, it was as a result of my interview with Ross Monroe on CKUA, because CKUA had a tradition of interviewing the new publisher who arrived at the Edmonton Journal. I hadn't done it before, but other people had. This time I interviewed Ross and I was very critical of the journal and um, very critical of some of its editorial policies, of editorializing off the editorial page, of distorting, um, using the camera to, to distort, and so on and so forth, and also their bad English. <laughs> and um, uh, we got along fine. Ross, I liked Ross very mm -hmm. much, and he responded uh, very, in a very lively way. So did he offer you a job? He said, if, if you feel bad? Not like, that day, not, but uh, not very long after that, I had a call from uh, Andy Snadden, mm -hmm. the editor. Now, I've known Andy for many, many years, too, and he had asked me on at least three other occasions when my children were quite small to join the paper um, and to um, to work in the women's department. Sort of the, well, they used to have a women's, uh, women's section, section of page. Yes, and yeah. before that it was the society section, you know, and I... I wasn't, uh, that didn't appeal to me too much. But then, uh, after I interviewed Ross, I did get this call asking me if I would join him as a columnist four times a week. So I, I did. You must have felt very, very good when that call came. I was pleased. I was partly pleased and I was partly worried. Uh, because, um, contrary to what some people sometimes think about me, um, I don't uh, have this overwhelming confidence that, I, that I'm... Uh, versatile enough to juggle a lot of roles you know, and my children are very important to me and um, I just I always had this uncertainty maybe because I'm the only real career woman at least the, the only woman in my large extended family uh, uncles aunts cousins what have you uh, who who ever really worked for a career reason it's something that I really deeply wanted to do because I had a a certain talent that I'd always had. And that makes you feel a little bit lonely in the family, a little bit defensive and also a little bit insecure. Can I really can I really handle this four times a week? Okay, so the kids are all off in school and all the rest of it, but still they're they're living there. So it was I was ambivalent, but I took it. And a column is a lot harder to produce than people think. They think, well you know, she just gives her own opinion and that's it. You know, it and they don't realize just how much work is involved in, in getting the logic and making sure you're correcting your facts and mm -hmm. all of that. There's a lot of research involved to keep up on things. Uh, there also is the, um, the deadline pressure. Mm -hmm. 
because uh, you know the muse is not just always sitting on your shoulder ready to accommodate you because you've got to have something in at 11 o'clock or whatever it is. Um, but I, I enjoyed it. CKUA, as you know, is a um, very much a minority station and for the most part I was speaking to the already converted. Most people were already in my camp. It was a whole new ballgame at the journal. Much wider audience and um, certainly not not always writing to the converted, I can tell you. Yeah. Um, what were some of your earlier columns about? Like today, you, you talk on many issues of, of that are, are feminist-oriented uh, in the early days, in, in 69, 70, around that. Did, did your column have the same sorts of topics? Well, certainly the feminist issue was being as, as strongly um, emphasized as it is now. Um, feminism generally was not as strongly emphasized in 69. But I had done a series on, um, on CKUA, and I personally feel that I have always been a feminist. Always, I think, a closet feminist or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> but um, I had done a series based on the, um, the Betty Friedan book, the Feminine Mystique. I did a five-part series on that because I was so impressed with that book. In fact, um, it, it uh, affected me in many of the same ways that it affected literally millions of women across the country and across the continent. I, the, the basic point for me that Friedan made was that you can be happily married, as I was then, um, have children whom you love, have no severe problems of finances or anything else, um, and still, and, and not be totally turned off by housework, love to cook, love to bake, um, housework, well, you know, it would have to be a little bit lacking to find that terribly exciting for very long, but nevertheless it wasn't a big, it wasn't a big hassle for me. Um, and yet, or what did she call it? The gray, the gray sickness. I think it was this feeling of there's got to be more discontent there. I, I've got to have a little bit more for myself. What? I, where have I gone? Where have have, have I gone? And um, so I, I really understood that. And as I read that book, I thought, ah, she's hit it. She really has hit it, and she's hit something deeper than that. She's hit your reluctance to speak of that for fear of giving the impression, A, that you're unhappily married, B, that you're criticizing your husband's um, manhood necessarily, but um, his ability to keep you totally happy, which of course is nonsense, nobody can supply the total happiness for anybody else. But she hit those very delicate, uh, very important issues. So I had done that, as a matter of fact, that series brought me the most mail that ever came into the program. By country mile. So I did write a bit about that when I came to the journal. I also uh, I wrote on education. I wrote on well to go back briefly. When I uh, met with the managing editor to decide the details of my joining the journal, I said, "Now, can I have the same arrangement that I have at CKUA? You are in a." bit of the driving position when, when you're asked to go. You know, yeah. I wasn't knocking on their door asking for a job, that's very different. <clears throat> but I, I told them just what I've been doing, the straight commentary, my own opinion pieces, um, 
talking about books, um, covering conferences and seminars. Uh, I also tried to do a humor piece every once in a while. And uh, he agreed. Absolutely, that, that was just fine. Mm -hmm. So I, I couldn't retreat from the kinds of things I've been doing on CKUA because I've been doing commentary. On, I was doing commentaries against the nuclear arms race 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. <coughs> Indeed, in the 50s. Yeah. yeah. So uh, that's the, the early days at the Journal. Did, mm -hmm. uh, did you ever get any flack from uh, the powers that be that, my God, Jim, we can't print this? No, I've, uh, I really haven't. I've, um, I think I have had two instances I can recall in the, in the how many years is this now? 13 years, I guess. Um, I did get some, some um, flack from the production manager of Dow Chemical. That's another thing that I did on, oh yes, that's another thing that goes way back too. You find that I write a lot about chemical pollution mm -hmm. and um, uh, made the point over the years, which I continue to make, that too often we base our, our um, judgment and our decisions on research done by the outfits that are making the, the products. And I was saying that on CKUA years ago when uh, this, the uh, second series of broadcasts that brought the second strongest uh, response was Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring. And um, so anyway, I, I continued to write along those lines, and um, I had written a column, well, I attacked Dow Chemical several times, but <laughs> I had written a column based on a news story, I don't know whether you remember it or not, but there was a news story where Dow held a big news conference in New York City, called in all the big guns at the press, to announce that they had now discovered that dioxin, a very dangerous chemical, a contaminant in 245T, um, was, uh, pre can be produced by just burning sticks or just a little bonfire. In other words, the point of the whole thing. It was, it was natural. It was a natural yeah. thing. I mean, you could be out there in the backyard cooking your weenies and you're, <laughs> and you're producing dioxin for heaven's sake, so why worry about this stuff? Now they didn't say that in so many words. But I picked up on that. Thomas Whiteside of the New Yorker magazine uh, whose books I've read for quite a while, too, picked up on it. And so I wrote a column, and I quoted a bit of Whiteside, too. Well, Mr. Trask of the Dow Chemical was not very happy. But he didn't, they never got in touch with me directly. They always got in touch with the big wheels of the journal. Did, did anybody ever threaten to sue? No. no. Not as far as I know, anyway. But um, um, he phoned Andy Snadden, and uh, Andy told me that they were very very unhappy with this, and uh, he wrote a nasty letter to the editor calling me inaccurate, ill-informed, um, so on and so forth, depending on um, people like Thomas Whiteside of the New Yorker, who's also a thorn in their side, has been for years. So I wrote a two-part rebuttal. Oh, he, his letter was so full of holes. Mm -hmm. Oh, now this business about a universal scientific community totally objective, totally unbiased, doing this research of theirs in this pure manner, submitting their, re their results to their scientific colleagues, equally unbiased, so on and so forth. Well, you know, there are some scientists like that out there, but we also know there are some who aren't. So you could have driven several trucks through the holes in their argument. So I wrote 
a two-part thing that I did very careful checking. I went over that those two and and wouldn't publish it. Really? I still have the copies in my files. But um, what he did do, he said he would write to Thomas Whiteside because they had questioned Thomas Whiteside too. He wrote to, to Thomas Whiteside, and uh, Whiteside wrote back. I saw the letter the other day in my file because uh, I got a copy. Uh, something about um, uh, the Dow letter, the A, B, C, and D, wrong, totally, well, this has already been proved, so on and so forth. And then congratulating June Shepherd of the Edmonton Journal for carrying on this fight. Wow. So Al Andy said, just you could just make a mention of this letter uh, in one of your bits and pieces columns, which I try to do once mm -hmm. a week, because people have requested that. Uh, but I didn't, I did a whole column on it. Didn't hear anything back. So that was one of the seems to me it was. Oh, the only other thing that I've been, uh, that not just, uh, it's not just I've been uh, questioned about this, although the policy seems to have changed now. Things change, you know, with new people coming. Um, there was sort of a, an inner dog fight going on between, oh, say, Don Braid and Roy Farron, mm -hmm. and they were going back at each other. And then I got into the act and was kidding Roy Farron about his cloak and dagger, and he's a great spy man. And um, we got a we got an edict from on high that there was to be no more of this um, cannibalization. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I desisted on that. But by and large, I have not uh, I have not been interfered with. I choose all my own topics. I uh, I have recently been criticized with the new publisher. Uh, about bringing too much of my own of my resource material and my reference material into my column, and um, I think that's a point well taken. I think that's a point well taken. One publisher told me um, that I wrote. O'Callaghan told me that I wrote too personal a column for him. And whether you want to change or not, you do. Maybe you're doing it unwittingly or unconsciously. I think that since that time, I have written a, a more impersonal column. The new publisher, New Beginning, recently transmitted a message to me through somebody else that my column's not personal enough. There's not enough of me in it. Uh, he wants, okay, if I do the, re the uh, study and the reference um, work behind the scenes, don't bring that in. Just, just great. Well, I guess when criticism is made of your column, it, it can be anything but uh, objective. I mean. It's a very subjective sort of thing, isn't yeah, it? That's what a column is. You know, and well, you 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 were really the only female columnist there until uh, well, until whom? Uh, uh, Lois Sweet. Lois Sweet. I was on the um, when I started out. I was in what they called what did they call the forerunner of lifestyle? Family Journal. The Family Journal, right? Catherine Carson is the editor, right? Then they changed the name to Lifestyle. Then I was told that, with great excitement by uh, William Thorsell, mm -hmm. that um, they were not. You're finding it warming here. It's a little warm. Yes, yes it is. Uh, my face is probably bright red. It's what it gets when I'm warm. Yes, Thorsell phoned me in great excitement uh, one evening and said they were establishing this writers' camp page nothing but columnists on it, and I was going to be anchored in the key spot up at the right-hand corner. 
Well, I was delighted. I was really delighted. Now, I suppose I should be slightly ambivalent about that, too, because uh, I do not, I don't ever want to give the impression that I'm putting down or, or, or denigrating the, uh, what is traditionally known as the women's section of the paper. On the other hand, I suppose journalists always think there's a certain, um, a certain status or whatever, being up front, being closer to the editorial. So that I didn't know. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, that's sort of a... Sort of like in the Kremlin, how close you are to the guy in the middle. That's right? precisely <laughs> yes, yes, you know, we're all touched with this, we all have our, our little weaknesses, that's what it is. Anyway, I was um, on that page um, for some time, and um, who was on there with me? Farron. Don Bray? Bray, when he came. Um, and sometimes have the wire columns there, but anyway. Then, uh, what, two, three years ago? Three years this January, I guess I had to take three months sick leave. And when I came back, uh, they had changed things around, and uh, uh, Frank Hutton was in my space, and I was moved back to, uh, to lifestyle. But now, I, and I was very unhappy about that at first, I complained about it to the publisher. Uh, but now I feel that maybe it's because of the women who are working there, um, who we share views, we're, we're feminists to one degree or another, because uh, feminists come in a lot of different shapes, sizes, outlooks and what have you, and lifestyles. Mm -hmm. And um, then Lois Sweet, who's on Writer's Camp page now, she's been moved back there, we alternate. Um, but I still write a Cromagra. Now, something that has been suggested to me lately is that um, I don't write enough on the Edmonton scene. Now, you'd be interested in that scene, the archivist for the area. Mm -hmm. That I, I uh, they appear to want it to be brought down more to a local level. Now, that for me would be quite impossible to do it in a self-conscious, deliberate way. Now, today, but, but your issues pertain to Edmonton people as much as somebody in Toronto or wherever, you know. Of course. So, I, I personally cannot agree with that criticism. Yeah, I personally do. Yeah. <laughs> you know, maybe June, we could talk about some of the things that uh, that you have dealt with in your column. Uh, uh, maybe we get your views on the. Uh, topics, mm -hmm. things like uh, equal pay for work of equal value. Uh, I think it's fair to say this is an outgrowth of the uh, equal pay for equal work, yes. which was sort of the first step. It's you know, difficult to define. You know. Yeah. Well, well, if that was difficult to define, then I think uh, for work of equal value, I know. equal pay is really a can of worms. You know. I mean, it really is. I mean, how do you yeah. equate a traditional female position like uh, secretary with uh, a traditional male position like truck driver, certainly a moving company, QC, uh, the family example, mm -hmm. uh, both are absolutely essential to the company. I mean, if you don't have somebody taking the calls and writing up those orders, you know, or if you don't have somebody actually delivering the goods, uh, uh, well, using that example, are, are they equal? Are they of equal value to the company? Well, as you say, that's the, the definitions of these things do do get bogged down in this kind of detailed argument. 
um, I sometimes wonder if, if that kind of argument is sort of gets us misdirected away from the basic, the basic subject. That um, the fact of the matter is that in, in 19 this particular part of 1982, the difference between men and women's salaries is is growing. Now I have no idea. For instance, go go to another example. I have no idea at the Edmonton Journal, for instance, what. You never know what other people are making. I strongly suspect that I am paid less than their, their uh, best reporters. I also strongly suspect that I'm paid less than their male columnists. Well, I think it would be fair to say somebody like Art Evans has been around, has the same background. I, I think you'd be comparable. I mean, you do a different type of column, but it's the same length and, and so on. Mm -hmm. Now, I would hope that the journal's policy would be to pay you more or less the same, perhaps you a little more. And a little more, or whatever. I have no idea. You know, no, neither I would I. The biggest but idea. It'd be interesting to find out, wouldn't it? Mm -hmm. And of course, the other point too, as you know, about about uh, women's work and men's work. I'm thinking about the university, for instance, uh, where I chaired the status of women, uh, status of academic women committee, because I was on the Senate for six years over there. Yeah, I didn't know that. Oh yeah. Really? Yeah. Yes, I was appointed to the Senate in '72, I think it was. I didn't want to go on. Uh, the Chancellor uh, at that time probably know Louis Desrochers. Mm -hmm. He um, approached me about going on and I said, oh no, I didn't think so. First of all, I thought the Senate was a bunch of old fuddy-duddies who just sat around, you know, and did nothing and uh, they got these honorary positions because they had maybe done something for the university years ago. And I, I knew very little about the Senate. Well, that's what I thought. and. Uh, also, I thought that it wasn't a good idea for a journalist to get involved in anything because what if I wanted to write a really negative story about something at the university campus? I thought it would tie my hands. So I went to, to management and discussed it with them. Well, I realize now that probably what, why they were in favor of it was that they thought it would bring a certain status to the journal. I think that's fair to say. And I think it did too. If one of the yeah. radio columnists is going to center. Well, I went to lunch with uh, Desrochers and uh, uh, he influenced me by saying, um, well, I tell you, June, that I'm, there are two other people I want to appoint to before my term of office is over. I want to have a, a different kind of people on the Senate. The other two people were Mary Van Stock, mm -hmm. who's just, passed just away. died, yeah. yes, I was just shocked by that, and um, uh, Chester Ronnie. Oh, really? And, Pretty good company. Um, yeah, Chester and I became very good friends on the Senate. but. Uh, and then he, he said, well, actually, uh, what I'm looking for, June, is quote-unquote shit disturbers. <laughs> so I said, well, things are looking up. Yes, I'll go. So I, I joined the Senate. And it was a very, very interesting six years. But I was appointed uh, as the head of this, this committee. It, uh, it went on for over two years. It was a very arduous uh, uh, task, not just for, certainly not just for me, but for the, all the members of the uh, committee. And um, one of the things we ran into there, particularly, we, we set ourselves the task, first of all, of doing both academic women and non-academic women. We found that the academic thing took us so long, uh, and that the non-acts situation was, you talk about a kettle of worms, there you had one, all these classifications of jobs, nobody could really describe what the classifications were, the women would be would be, um, well, for instance, the, the waitresses in the in some of the dining rooms there in a little group way down there, um, men doing what you would, oh, here you get, go, 
comparable jobs, maybe a janitor's job. Um, from my point of view, they would be comparable, but because it was a male category, sometimes the differences in their salaries were appalling. So one of the recommendations in the final report, which I think came out in 74, was to have a completely objective, off-campus uh, study of the non-academics. And I think that's in the process now. But it's still a very unfortunate situation because equal pay for equal work. Maybe that's closer than equal pay for... I'm funny, I was looking at this before I came out today. Uh, I saw, saw that phrase, equal pay for work of equal value. And I think any feminist would tell you, yes, that that's, that's sometimes difficult to define. But let's... I don't think we've really dealt yet with just the simple inequities in the marketplace for women. And they are there. Uh, another big issue that uh, it seemed to have died away a bit in the 70s, mm -hmm. now it's really back in a big way again is the abortion question. Uh, it, you know, it's really, really being bantered about. Now, you're pro-choice. Yes. You know, uh, uh, so am I. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so we're not going to have a fight this <laughs> it's, it's a little difficult to play the devil's advocate. Yeah. Nevertheless, uh, the, the non-feminist uh, perspective is that uh, life begins at conception and uh, to uh, anyway interfere with this growth is to uh, commit an act of nothing short of murder. Uh, how do you respond to people when they say that to you? That you're well, I just say you have a perfect right to believe that if you wish. Uh, I do not believe that. Um, millions of people do not believe that. It has not been defined. It is almost impossible to define. Um, therefore, this is why I'm for choice. Would you believe that? Therefore, I would never in a million years, and this is what gives sometimes gives the pro-choice stance less of a uh, zealous drive to put its point across, because it's rather a gentle to be pro-choice, to say to you, certainly, you, I, I respect your right to believe that. So you go ahead and never ever have an abortion. But don't tell me I'm just as bright as you are, just as intelligent as you are, just as moral as you are, just as child-loving as you are, just as, as humanity-loving as you are. Don't take unto yourself the word life. I'm about life, too. Um, but do not try to get the laws of the land changed to tell me what I must do. Never, ever, ever would I think to tell you what you must do. But you see, there's a this, this whole business of, of when life begins. My goodness, the the uh, the Roman Catholic Church itself, not too many decades ago, um, was was not taking the stance on abortion that it is now. Some some people, uh, I think people who are maybe uninformed or don't read their history. Um, I seem to have the idea that this was something ordained way back when, way back by, by God, you know, way back in, in the... Pre-art times or something. Yes, that's right. Before the archives of Edmonton were being put together. But it's, it's unfortunate. It is unfortunate in that it 
has become a very emotional issue. Uh, I will not debate it in public anymore. I will not appear on the same platform with a zealous anti-abortionist. Um, I have gone through the whole period of having my, have to have a silent phone because I was threatened in the night, just as my friend Doris Anderson of Chatelaine was, just as most women I prominent. Do you know Doris? Yeah, oh, I bet. Really? Yeah. Oh, I've known Doris for years. She's yeah. a good friend of mine. But, yes, I was told that uh, all this nonsense I printed the paper about loving my grandchildren and, and loving children, um, how can I possibly try to kid people because after all I'm a murderer and advocating people murder their, you know. Their well, I think we're going to see more of it with Dr. Morgenthaler wanting to set up his clinic. I admire Dr. Morgenthaler. I really do admire him, Morgenthaler, very much. Uh, he has taken a lot of abuse to and including the anti-Semitic charges, which are now again, sadly, coming up again. Really, it's, it's shocking. They're, they're referring to him as uh, the Auschwitz something or the other. And of course, he, he was a victim of Auschwitz yeah, himself. His family. I mean, it's it's an incredible yeah. insult. But when you get zealots involved, yeah. and particularly if there's a religious uh, zealotry underneath, then any kind of reason, any kind of, of compassion goes out the window. Now, mind you, some of the best information that I'm getting, some of the information from my point of view that's, that's uh, really very moving, is from the National Coalition of American Nuns and from the group in the United States, which, which net mu uh, numbers are growing rapidly, the um, uh, Catholics for a Free Choice. Uh, some of the most interesting information and some of the most compassionate information is coming out of that group. But we've seen this, this swing to the right politically. Mm -hmm. We get men like um, Jesse Helms from, from North Carolina and, and that group, of Paul Laxalt, um, Reagan's um, close friend, sponsoring this family protection bill. Uh, they are, well, they really, they really are way, well, Laxalt, of course, is so, is so, uh, such a shocking example in some ways of a, a contradiction that he doesn't even seem to be aware of himself. He's, he's pushing for the traditional family. Um, all these feminists who are ruining the traditional family. He walked out on his wife of 30 years uh, about a year ago to take up with a very young woman and his wife is saying if there ever was a man who didn't protect the family, he <laughs> was one. But uh, anyway, that's a little bit off the point. But I well, think, I think it's very much to the point, really. Because, you know, you talk about uh, the, the, the swing to the right. We had Phil Shafley in town uh, recently, you're well aware. Mm -hmm. And uh, here's a, as you said in your column, a fine example of someone who constantly worked outside the home, mm -hmm. preaching that people should work in the home. Yes. Yeah. You know, uh, people like uh, Anita Bryant, screaming about uh, the family, and then she ends up in divorce court herself. Yes. You know, it's... Uh, well, Schlafly, I think one of the reasons that um, that Schlafly antagonizes people, and uh, as one of the strong anti-abortionists in the city wrote to the to the paper not long ago, uh, pointing out that um, that Betty Friedan, when she was on a platform with Schlafly, um, screamed at her to the just lost her cool completely and screamed at her to the effect that do you remember what the direct quote or something? But she was she, she wanted to strangle her. Not no, it wasn't that. But it was just some extreme right. thing like that. I would just like to get my hands around your neck. Something or like that, yes. And of course, that is that is wildly extreme. Almost, it's almost amusing. But 
that's the kind of thing that Schlafly and some of the people who, who uh, are around her, like Helms is another one, bring out in you, bring out in even reasonable people, because there's a quality of self-righteousness, a pious self-righteousness about anybody who says, we are all right and you are all wrong. I have never said that the people on the right are all wrong. They, they, um, there is cause today to be alarmed about the family. There is cause today when you look out in our society to be alarmed about uh, the shaking foundations of our society so that people don't really, the, the shaking sands under our feet, indeed. But their, their solutions seem to be in so many ways um, to refuse to acknowledge change to either try to turn us back to where we were, which is utterly impossible, and to try to see feminists as a stereotype bunch of, I think I mentioned this not long ago, man-haters, mm -hmm. child-haters, um, women who are determined to, to uh, run the world, are aggressive. When I see uh, Ted Byfield, who incidentally mm -hmm. uh, likes me and, and I uh, like, like many things about Ted. We've been out socially together and, and uh, get along fine. He reads me all the time. <laughs> no doubt. Oh yes, he reads me all the time. But you know, uh, the, the, the last thing when you were describing uh, what, what the feminists say, of course, uh, that they always uh, do a lot of gay baiting and say that feminists are lesbians. Yes. And as a feminist, I, I find that personally very difficult to, to be a lesbian, <laughs> which I think shows a very narrow sort of amount of consciousness. I mean, that only women can be feminists. Uh, it's ridiculous. Oh, no, no you know, like, oh, yes. Indeed, and, and how can all feminists be lesbians? Yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. Oh, yes, the word feminist. A lot of people cannot, really, cannot understand how that, or a word feminist, coming from feminine, coming from female, could be applied to a... To I think mean, it's very, very narrow. But nevertheless, there is the, uh, the the lesbian issue, yes. and we have things like uh, lesbian custody rights, yes. and uh, which, well, for lack of a better word, the right is very, very much against. Uh, have you ever discussed that in your column? I think I haven't, haven't because um, also since Lois Sweet has joined the paper, uh, we try. I try not to go too heavily into areas that she concentrates on very strongly. And of course, she has done a great deal of that. Uh, the way I feel about it. In fact, I was at a, I was at a um, pre-Christmas party of some feminist women. You know, Myrna Costash, the writer of Myrna's place, just, just over here. And uh, Lois was there. It was Sunday afternoon. And in fact, looking around, just to digress briefly, to look around that room, there's Lois happily married, two children, expecting another one, um, Susan Sneath, hugely pregnant, Gail Price, happily married, one little girl whom she had to bring with her because her husband couldn't babysit that afternoon. She owns Handworks, that little shop out there on 24th Street, hugely pregnant. Um, one woman, unmarried, um, not interested in being married, um, interested in men, uh, has a very good relationship with the men, loves children but can't have one, is unhappy about it. Um, one of the others doesn't want children, just they're not part of her life at all. Here am I, my early 60s, a mother, divorced, um, very fond of men if they're feminists, but, and, and very fond of men, mm -hmm. but I can't relate to men anymore who aren't feminists, which is 
kind of sad. I, I relate to them if they have a, an open mind to learning something about it, but it's very difficult among contemporaries. Men were my contemporaries. Some of them just, they can't even open their minds to it. But anyway, we were discussing this, the lesbian thing. And uh, I said, well, maybe this is an oversimplification, but surely the most important criterion must be whether this is someone who is a fit mother. In, what does being a fit mother mean? Is it someone who loves the child, who, who chooses to have this child just for the reason that she wants a child to love and be with and so on and so forth? All the good reasons why a heterosexual, well, reason, the good reasons a heterosexual should have, mm -hmm. often doesn't, mm -hmm. but um, and what kind of what kind of relationship does she have? What kind of a, a home life does she have? Is it a bad one? A good? You know, all those things. But of course, you see, there's an. I hate to go back to the religious theme all the time. Nevertheless, it it uh, it is germane here. There's no question about it. If you have a, if you believe, say, in the in the R.C. Church, that sex for any other reason. And the woman to get pregnant and have a child. Man, a woman having a child who. There are two things. If you have sex and you cut off the possibility of having a child, that's sinful. Mm -hmm. If over here you're able to get a child, but you haven't gone through that process of travail and that women should go through and have a rough time, that's bad. That's anti God. Fundamentalists. Have the same That's why I brought it up because I see that contradiction and I see the contradiction too. On one hand they'll say that uh, uh, female feminists, they'll they'll gay bait them or lesbian bait them. And then on the other hand, there's a, a, a section of, of the feminist movement that is is challenged, you know, advocating uh, custody rights for lesbians and you know, there's, there's a contradiction there. It just simply doesn't work. No, I don't think I followed you there. Oh, you, oh well, the feminists well, are, are all lesbians. Oh, I see. Oh, yes, yes, yes. You know, saving artificial insemination. Yes. There's, there, there can't be a pregnancy. That's yeah. another thing, my point I might make, too, just going back briefly to the abortion thing. When I've been talking to Henry Morgenthau, he keeps, uh, he always points out um, the punishment of women feature that is in the anti-abortion thing. In other words, um, if you have had sex and you are not, and you didn't, you, the idea wasn't that you were having sex in order to have a baby, and you have become pregnant, then by golly, you better suffer the consequences. And the fact that there are such direct link, well, over and above the right to, to choice about what happens to your own life and your own body, but there are such links now shown between the unwanted child and and child abuse. They totally ignore that, so on and so forth. That's another, I think the, the punishment of the woman, it goes way back into history, the scarlet woman. And um, and there is a, there's a, a punishment feature in the uh, anti-abortion. I saw a cute cartoon once, you might want to use sometime, where it showed up uh, old East part of the United States, Puritan scenes, little chickens around, and the women all in their long skirts, and they have their little baskets, and uh, and off of the book, The Scarlet Letter, uh, one of the uh, Puritan women had an A 
and right beside it was a plus sign, <laughs> which, which, which I found very amusing. <laughs> anyway, when people do, take a look at you oh sure, it's quarter to I'm keeping a close quarter time. to eleven. Yeah. Oh, that's fine. Yeah. Fine. Um, oh, good. I just didn't know where yeah, you were because I forgot my watch. Yes. Um, <laughs> sure. I know you have another appointment, uh, but when people do have children, uh, they quite often want daycare facilities, and. I think it's fair to say that our provincial government is just appalling in, in lack of funds, lack of standards, investigation of and maintaining the few standards they do have. Mm -hmm. uh, perhaps you could just comment on that, on what should be done to improve the daycare facilities. Or what, well, ideally, what would you like to see? I think, um, first of all, of course, you have a right-wing government. And the philosophy, the underlying philosophy of, of generally speaking, of the right-wing, uh, is that um, the mother belongs at home. Now, that's, that's an oversimplification because some, of course, who are realistic enough to know she's not in the home, rather by hundreds of thousands, and is not about to go back, and that our economy would fall apart if they all did go home tomorrow. But that, that I think, is the stumbling block, that there's not a dedication to care of children. The daycare thing well, once again, I think the first criterion should be the quality of care for children. Um, I am prepared in these economic times maybe, maybe to make the concession that the kind of more sophisticated uh, learning establishment where indeed they had um, experiences that maybe even the best parents, the best mother in the home could not provide. But so, so maybe uh, reluctantly, and I will say that we could move, because that's expensive, we could move away from that. But to go to the other extreme and cut costs and provide nothing more than a, a babysitting service or allow um, um, private, unsupervised kind of daycare or open it up even further so it's in private homes without supervision. We know, we've, we've looked at enough of those to know that that um, that those are really very bad. So I think I'm even prepared to say, <coughs> excuse me, I'll get a frog. I'm prepared to say that. I'm, let me put it this way. I perhaps have backed down a bit in saying that it must be all government backed, all government sponsored. I used to say. I really feel that any kind of care for the elderly and for children, or maybe any group of society, whose underlying motive is profits, is open to too many weaknesses, too many um, uh, faults, and they will too often they, the profits have to be increased and increased and increased, so the services are cut back, cut back, and cut back. And because the elderly, and especially children, uh, can't stand up and scream about them, then you have this, this bad situation. Now I'm, I'm a little bit more relenting on the, the private side, but only a little bit. There's some of these large organized um, daycare centers are coming in from, from the states. Those are so new, and I don't know enough about them now to know whether they do actually provide a top quality service at a reasonable price. 
so many people going to, to uh, the idea of getting government out of it, I've heard some government people say, you know, the people who say, get the government out of uh, practically everything. They're forgetting the number of single women out there, the number of people who have to work, who can't afford daycare without some kind of, of government help. The fact of the matter is, if you look at the number of children uh, who need care across the country and compare it to the number of available places, the question must arise in your mind, where are thousands of kids being left these days? And it, one thing that really angers me is that you'll get these pious statements from politicians about that our children are our greatest strength, our greatest assets, we must care for the future of the children. The Heritage Fund must be preserved for, for our children's future. But we really aren't a child-oriented society. I think that we've never really made a true commitment to the philosophy of daycare, that we still think of it as taking over the responsibilities of children from parents or a single parent who doesn't give a damn. If you look at the, the facts of the matter, that's not true. Indeed. Um, another issue that I really wanted to get uh, uh, your views on, and especially because you're, you're with the press, and that's the question of pornography versus freedom of the press. Okay, and uh, now I, I know that you're you're against pornography, but I know you're for freedom of the press. Yes. So that's why I really want your opinion, uh, and especially since there's the bombing by uh, yes. the, the women's group in. Uh, oh, it comes down to Vancouver, definitions. You know, well, some people say get magazines like Playboy off off the stand, you know, and other people want you know very hardcore uh, magazines. Uh, Whose names I'm not familiar with, uh, but nevertheless do exist now. Uh, well, the, the, even even more even more than, even more than that, that yeah. perhaps the names change. You know, uh, uh, you know, uh, with each and every issue. You know, uh, how do you resolve that in your own mind that that pornography should somehow be controlled, if not eliminated, and plus the people's right to to read in their own home or to look at any pictures or movies that they choose. You know. I suppose probably what has changed is that the real hardcore pornography used to travel versus the underground among people who get their kicks out of that sort of thing. Um, what has changed in the last few years is that, that what was certainly one time described as hardcore pornography is now big business, like hardcore pornography for instance has always involved children, has always involved small children. Uh, some of the worst examples of it uh, have been in, in uh, polite British society among um, the upper classes in Britain, you know, the, the um, small children. In, but that was an underground, very specialized thing that went from person to person to person. If you study the, the situation in Britain, you, and not just Britain, of yeah. course, but you know that there was a, a network. And that's, yeah. that's the word I'm yeah. looking for, exactly. Um, and indeed it is a sensitive issue because uh, the question of censorship is because you know we're seeing now for instance the burning of books 
We're seeing now people with certain religious views. In fact, not very long ago, a new organization in Edmonton, a women's group that calls itself, well, Gottwash or something like that, it's like a dog's bark. But, um, you know, this, this Kay Higgins, Kathleen Higgins is yeah. the, well, she is Mrs. Toth's daughter. I don't get the connection. Oh, the Toths, you know, the Toths are the anti-abortion, Ms. Mark, Toth, Kathleen oh, Toth, they write letters to the paper all the time. Right. Kathleen Toth is the head of the pro-life organization here. She is absolutely, oh, talk about a zealot. She is the prime one. Well, this new organization that's been formed, they wrote a letter to the paper the other night uh, in praise of, of Phyllis Schlafly. They were the ones who brought Schlafly in. And the woman who signs her letters, Kay Higgins, is actually Kay Toth Higgins. So you've got to be aware of that that um, relationship there. But now, what did I start to say? I always go into my my uh, subordinate clauses. <laughs> well, um, anyway, you you wanted to make a point about pornography yeah. and and the children being involved and uh, and the fact that it was underground and now it's yeah, well, I know, I know what I was going to say. Yes, um, this group, this new group. One of the things that they said in this. Uh, letter to the paper, uh, or said to a reporter about what their aims were uh, to increase the, the status of the woman in the home. But one of the ones that caught my eye was, and to go into the school system to investigate some of the, the textbooks. And I thought, ah, ah, that's one that's got to be watched. Because the thing that happens is that almost invariably people start censoring for the wrong reasons from a narrow base. I always remember the, case, the classic case of, of a book being censored was um, uh, Salinger's Catcher in the Rye. That's the classic one. One of my favorite books of all time. I absolutely love that book. I, I still am a great friend of the woman who recommended it to me when it first came out, and I was so grateful for getting it. I wept over it. Salinger's never written anything to compare. So there you get the danger of censorship. But I think. Some maybe disagree with me on this definition of, of pornography. The new element that has come into the public domain, it's always been in this private network, is the sexual violence against women and children, mostly girl children, but boy children too. The As you know, it's a $4 billion business. When you see in the Gateway, um, that, yeah. that was not Gateway, it was the engineer's paper. Yeah, Remember that right, one? yeah. Now, Shall we then, let's put it this way, what would the reaction be, do you think, if there was on the newsstands or available in a shop or in a, in a store window ad, in Vogue magazine ad, a big campaign um, tying Jews up, um, putting them up against a wall, raping them, um, uh, brutalizing them in every or blacks, uh, or just men, just men, yeah, just men. Now I use women because um, of the minority. Uh, I mean, I use Jews and blacks yeah. because of the minority connotation. Although women are not a minority in terms of numbers, but there would be an outcry, and that would not that would be called criminal assault, it would be called criminal violence, and it would be charged. So. When you write about pornography these days, maybe a new definition has come into it. The public sale of material, or the public availability, the public promotion, 
and the tremendous profits being made out of material that not only demeans, but sexually, but simply treats one segment of society with violence that we cannot condone. Uh, perhaps I'm hearing you wrong, but it seems that you, 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 you are almost suggesting that when it was underground, that it was okay. You know, you. Oh you no! Know, no, you're not, no, you're not no, saying no, that. No, not I, I no, not at all. No, not at all. But you couldn't get at that anyway. No, no. I mean, to, to me, the the um, the whole idea of whoever's doing it in whatever way to demean and violate and uh, and get your kicks out of reducing somebody to an object that you can use whatever way you like, that is really very, very sick. But the fact that it's a $4 billion industry on this continent really must get us terrified. I mean, clearly there's a lot of people who enjoy that. Of course. You know, yes, I that's mean, the frightening thing. You know. And then some people will say, of course, the feminists have done it. Oh yes, some people say, well, the feminists have done that. They brought out all this hatred against themselves, these aggressive uh, man-hating... Well, blame the victim. Of, yes, I mean, it, I've said that many times in the column. But related to that, you know, is that uh, now the, uh, the anti-feminist movement is saying that the real people who are in for censorship are the feminists, who want to take the word male man and turn it into letter carrier, who want to take the word uh, stewardess and make it... Uh, uh, airline attendant, yes. you know, and so on. And uh, what would you say to them? Well, now I will. I would say this: that I think perhaps well, I'm going to be ambivalent here too. Not ambivalent, but well, let's say reasonable. I, I much rather <laughs> think of it as reasonable. Um, I think that it's possible to get bogged down in things like this to the point that that you risk turning off people who might be supportive of you or open-minded on the bigger issues. On the other hand, language is vitally important. Language is terribly important. The fact that we don't, we never bothered getting into our language words that denoted the woman in the same category certainly indicates where we've been. But maybe we could make that point without, or can we, can we, do we have to continue to go through the fine print finding every single word that should have a female counterpart and use our energies on that? Have we made the point? Maybe, yes, maybe I would say this, and some feminists would attack me for this, I know, but maybe I would make this point. We have emphasized the fact that we are lacking these words, these special words for us, because of where we've been in the past. But having made that, can we really hope to think that we're going to change all of that and have that accepted? I. I but a lot of people would say that that is where you have to start. Because that's the roots of sexism. It's in the educational system, yeah. in the books that children read. Yes. And girls then do grow up thinking they can only be airline stewardesses, yes. you know, rather yes. than, as they say, flight attendant, any gender, or either gender can. I think it should be yeah. an ongoing thing. But I think there is a danger at times of, of getting maybe bogged down in that kind of thing and putting too much emphasis on it. 
I don't think it's ever going to be. I think what you're saying is we need priorities. I think so. I think so. Um, you've been given several honors uh, over the years, and in the more recent past, I guess, uh, to get any honor, you have to recall your life <laughs> to get it at the end, right, when you're established. Uh, from uh, ASWAC, or the Alberta Status of uh, Women Action Committee, yeah. they made you the first honorary life member. Yes. Had you been a, a regular member uh, of ASWAC prior to receiving Well, that? I always sent in my membership, but I was never active with them. I um, I knew most of the members, I knew most of the founding members, and I've given them a, I gave them a good deal of publicity in my column to help them get on, you know, to, to uh, get established. Um, I admire ASWAC. Um, it is the umbrella organization, as you know, for, for Alberta women. I, um, I'm not in as close contact with them now as I was in the beginning, because that the founding group were closer friends of mine. But um, I guess I have the same feeling about ASWAC as I have about the Canadian uh, Action Committee on the Status of Women. Um, in this country, unfortunately, unlike the states where they have the NOW group, because of course it's a bigger country, it's a wealthier country, so on and so forth, we still have to have this dependency on government for funding. And any way you look at it, that's a... Well, it's in our tradition, too, to have a lot more government involvement. Right, right. You know, uh, and depending on the government, um, it, it restricts you to a certain extent. But ASWAC has, has done and is continuing to do a, a lot of good things. I also was a, an honorary, made an honorary member of the Academic uh, Women's Committee of the University campus as a result of my work on the Senate with that Status of Women Committee. And I was very... Uh, Honored about that, and off the record, I've been nominated for an honorary doctorate. Really? Well, I certainly hope that works out. That'd be great. I'm, I'm honored just to have been nominated. It's just lovely. Really? Mm -hmm. And and you received the 1982 uh, YWCA yes uh, tribute to women's award. Women in uh, my category was women in education and communications. Mm -hmm. Yes, I was delighted with that. Just delighted. The YW is a an organization I admire and have admired more in the last few years because it's become much more activist. Sure have. Yeah, they sure do some have. good things, and that was a very classy affair. It was, it was well done. It was um, well organized. It was it ran smoothly, but it had, it had a certain elegance to it. It was a very nice affair, men and women there, and uh, I think everybody went home with a, a good feeling about it. That it had been a warm, friendly. Uh, event, and most of the women who got the honors were older women. Um, in fact, I imagine they all have been in the over 55 category. And I think that was not a bad way to start, but I would like to see it broaden out and have, have women, well, there were lots of nominees who were much younger, and um, because I have a, have a wide circle of acquaintances across a whole spectrum, I mean, 20s to the 80s, and I hope that not all these younger women who are doing some really good things in the arts and whatever uh, have to wait till they're 60 to be honored by the Y, but I don't think that's their idea. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Uh, it seems that the awards that you do receive are very sincere awards. It's not, uh, well, I say, like so many politicians are forever being given plaques and so on, but your awards are uh, awards that really mean something by the giver, and I think it's fair to say uh, mean something by the recipient. Very much. Oh, yes. I'm, very, very pleased. I um, I was also very honored to get the uh, Canadian Women's Press Club 
uh, Memorial Award, Jeff, I think it was 72. Um, particularly interested, Barbara Frum was one of the other winners wow. because I admired her very much. Good that was for a national call, and then I was a runner-up uh, one other year. Oh yes, those are all. Uh, that that of course was an honor because it was your peers, as they say, mm -hmm. and it's, uh, that was important. I, I realize our time is getting short, but could you take just a couple minutes, June, and tell us what's on the uh, horizon for you or the future? What are you? Well. Doing? I'm hoping that I don't have to retire when I get to be 65, but with the economy the way it is, I suspect that probably that will come. I was hoping that um, that the journal would be interested in keeping me on as a, um, not a full-time, not the way I am now, but maybe one column a week, uh, and I would, I'm on, on CKUA once a week too. I would like to continue that if I could, just to keep my hand in those two areas. I, um, I'm going to suffer what a lot of single, you know, widowed or divorced women uh, do when I retire. That is a drastic drop in income. Drastic drop in income. In fact, um, my my salary now is, is is a comfortable one for a single person. There's no question about it. Um, but unless some of the the advice I'm getting right now is to do all these smart things with what money I've got, uh, unless they turn out to be just sensationally um, successful, which is doubtful. Um, I will be, well, I'll be certainly below any poverty line, no question about it. So there's going to be a big adjustment there, but then I've been through poverty before, I've been through the yeah. depression before, and in some ways jettisoning some of the complications in your life and some of the things in your life mm -hmm. uh, and getting down to basics can be um, atomic. So I'm hoping that um, I have gone through a period of, of um, not such great health, but I'm, I, that seems to be greatly improved. And, uh, well, what? I'd like to do a different kind of writing. Uh, Write a book, perhaps? Yeah, I would like to, but of course a lot of people say that. Yeah, I know. I've got a book in me. Maybe yeah. mine will just stay in me. <laughs> but uh, I've done a lot of traveling. I'd like to hope that I, I'd like to think that I will have uh, enough money to do a bit of that. Um, I'm interested in a number of things. I can't imagine that I will ever be bored because I, there are so many things I want to read, so many things I want to, people I want to meet, so many, I'd like to, um, I'd like to get involved in um, something in Edmonton, I don't know whether another paid job or... Um, it seems to me if you can't find something, you'll likely start something. Well, that would be even better. That would be even better. <laughs> be even better. Yeah. See, I'd like to thank you very, very much for the interview today. I think you've given us a lot of really good information for the archive. And I enjoyed it very much. Thanks again. This material is a digitized audio recording from the holdings of the City of Edmonton Archives. For more information regarding the recording, please contact us by email at cms.archives at edmonton.ca, by phone at 780-496-8711, or on our online catalog at cityarchives.edmonton.ca.